If you would, turn in your Bibles, or you can follow up on the screen to our Old Testament reading, uh, which is coming from the book of Numbers, um, part of the Torah, or the books of instruction written by Moses. And so Numbers, the other name for Numbers in Hebrew would be Bamidbar, or in the wilderness. Uh, We get the Numbers title from the senses that are conducted in the book itself where the people of Israel are numbered. And so in this book, you have uh, the longest period being documented in the Exodus uh, period of Israel. You have 40 years in this book that is condensed into these chapters, and you have various uh, dealings uh, between God and his people, and most of them are very uh, bad, to be quite honest. The people of God are grumbling against God. The people of God are rebelling against God. And God uh, chastens them, corrects them, and then continuously provides for them throughout this experience. And yet they rebel. What's interesting is that uh, Moses did not get into the promised land. Miriam, his sister, did not get into the promised land. Aaron did not get into the promised land. Only Joshua and Caleb from that generation, from the men of war counted 20 years and older, only Joshua and Caleb came into the promised land because they trusted and believed and were faithful to the Lord. So we are looking at our passage, and our passage is in chapter 21, and in verses 4 through 9. And I just want to read them to you, and then maybe make some commentary. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the, spe- the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if A serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What a strange way uh, of doing things. So we have these people that are grumbling against God. They're grumbling against Moses. They are complaining about the manna that God had provided from them, from heaven. Remember that for 40 years, they were fed by God. 
For 40 years, they wandered in the desert and their clothes and their shoes, their sandals did not wear out and they were fed by God. Remember that when they crossed the Jordan into the promised land, the manna from heaven stopped falling. But for 40 years, so God has fed them. They had grumbled previously about not having meat. God provided meat for them. He provided birds for them, quail probably, uh, to the height of two cubits. And that is about 32 inches. That's how much meat he provided uh, for them. But they're complaining against God. So God judges them and sends these fiery serpents Well, probably the serpents or the vipers in the area, probably when they bit, they had this burning, stinging sensation. And so they were dying. But God tells them to make this bronze serpent and to put it on a pole. And if they looked at it, they would be healed. Was there anything magical in the serpent? No, no. The point of it was to trust God. The point of it was to turn to God and to trust in his provision, to believe what he said. That was the point. And the serpent, this bronze serpent, as we will see in the next text, is foreshadowing something. And that is the beauty about looking at the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are not any disconnections in the sense of that you can ignore the Old Testament and only favor the New Testament. Though it seems most most and much of our preaching today from behind the pulpit emphasizes the new so much that we lose the connection between the two covenants. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New Testament. But there is a connection that is very important. There is a lot of foreshadowing in the Old Testament and a lot, and the fulfillment of which comes in the New Testament. And so both Testaments point to the faithfulness of God over time. But this bronze serpent then becomes a stumbling block for the Jews in King Hezekiah's day, when he took office, when he became the king of Judah, he destroyed the bronze serpent that Moses has made because they were worshiping it. See, that is the problem with the human heart. The human heart is created to worship, and we will worship. We will worship. And so... What I wanted you to get out of this here is that even in the judgment of God, he is gracious and provides for those who trust him a way out. He is a gracious and good God. And I don't want us to miss that here. That also rebellion against God carries consequences. But Faith and trust in God carries much reward. And so, now, if you would, turn to our New Testament reading, which comes from the Gospel of John. I, this is probably my favorite Gospel. If I had to be pressed to choose a Gospel, it would be John. Um, 
in it you see the beauty of God. In it you see the beauty of Christ um, and the deity of Christ clearly proclaimed. And also John has a very clear thesis statement about why he wrote the gospel. And you find that in the 20th chapter in verses 30 and 31. The Apostle John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God, and by that believing you may have life in his name. He tells you why he writes this gospel. And we are in this third chapter And in it, Jesus has an encounter with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the teacher of the Jews, and Jesus is having this encounter with him. Nicodemus comes to him at night. He tells Jesus, we believe you're a prophet. He's missing the whole point of who Jesus is. But but he comes, and Jesus is instructing him, and he explains to him of the working of God, that the working of God is, is mysterious. The working of God is through the Spirit of God, and that it can neither be seen or traced, or there is nothing that you can do to earn that. God is the one who works. God is the one who changes. And he, he befuddles Nicodemus by saying, you must be born again. And I know that some scholars think that Nicodemus was being sarcastic and he's, when he's asking these questions of how can a man be born again? Can he go back into his mother's womb? I, I don't think that Nicodemus was, was, was being sarcastic or being smart or flippant. I think Nicodemus was confronted with his misunderstanding of Scripture and his, his dogmatic probably stances in certain things that were taught. And so Jesus confounds him, says, hey, you got to be born again. And then he gives him this illustration of the wind. You neither see it come nor go, illustrating that the power of God. You can't know what God is going to do. God works, and he must work in the human heart. He must change that in order for you to see or even appreciate the kingdom of heaven. And then he comes to this place here. These two verses that we are going to look at in verse 14 of chapter 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Old Testament foreshadowing of what is necessary for eternal life. As Moses lifted up the bronze serpent, and those who put their trust and their faith in God were healed, foreshadowing that the Son of Man, Jesus here speaking of the way that he must go, speaking of the way of his death, crucifixion, that the Son of Man, the Son of God, must be lifted up. He must be seen clearly. He must be seen as the one who bears the sins of his people. And we, believing that he is who he says he is, and having faith in God, put our trust in him and have eternal life. Old Testament foreshadowing, New Testament fulfillment. That is, what I want you to see in these two texts is the faithfulness 
of God. And God's faithfulness is demonstrated throughout time. And God's faithfulness is not contingent upon man's faithlessness. I'll say that again. God's faithfulness is not contingent, dependent upon man's faithlessness. And this is a wonderful thing. And it is something that I hope as we go through our text today that we will see uh, being uh, played out before us. And so if you have your Bibles or you can read on the screen, if it's, if it's up there, please turn to the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And we will be looking at verses 1 uh, through 13 today in the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians 1 through 13, and we will read them together. So please stand if you are able to, as is our custom for the reading of the preaching text. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray. Lord, we have come to this time of looking at your word. And Lord, uh, who is qualified to, to handle your word? Unless, Lord, you lead us through your spirit into your word and you give us understanding and discernment, uh, we are lost. But your word says, 
And you say, Lord Jesus, that you will send us the helper, the Holy Spirit, and that he will lead us into all truth and that he will bring to remembrance all that you have said. And so, Lord, we thank you for that gift. And Holy Spirit, we ask and pray that you would lead us in this time of worship, that you will convict us where we need to be convicted of our sin and rebellion against you and that you would bring repentance and healing and restoration, that you would encourage us to live lives that are godly and glorify you. And Lord, I I pray that we will be faithful as you are faithful, for your loving kindness endures forever. Thank you, God, for this time, and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I wanted to point out some things in the text as we get started, and then I want to walk through this text with you. There are three commands in this text. They're called imperatives, but they're volitional statements in this text. And so I want us to just be aware that there are three commands in this text. And there are, I think, 11 commands in the whole section, the whole chapter. Things that we are told that we should do. And so the first one we find is in the seventh verse. Do not become idolaters. And it is a plural. These are all plural commands. Do not become idolaters. That is in verse 7. The second command we find in verse 10. Do not grumble. Do not grumble. The third command we find in verse 10. 12, beware lest you fall. These are the three commands that we find in this section. Do not become idolaters. Do not grumble. Beware lest you fall. And I want us to bear those things in mind as we start walking through these texts. Now, Paul is making a lot of reference here to the common heritage of the Jews, the common experience of the Jews. So in my estimation, he is writing particularly to Jewish converts to Christianity because they would have this history. They would know what Paul is talking about. So when we start off here, look at how the way Paul starts. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. And I want you to notice that that is the reason why I think that these are converts, Jewish converts. Because Paul addresses them as brothers. He's addressing them as Christians. And then I want you to see why I think that they're Jews. That our fathers, our forefathers, were all under the cloud. Well, that's 
pretty cryptic language if we're not familiar with the Old Testament. But if we are familiar with the Old Testament, we see what Paul is talking about. He is referring to Exodus 13, 21. And I'll read it for you. And the Lord went before them day by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. This is why I think Paul is writing to Jewish converts to Christianity. They have a shared history. And so he says, hey, I don't want you to be unaware. And I don't want you to be unaware that they all passed through the sea. We are all familiar with that. Most of us, if you're of my age, remember Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, standing up there holding the staff and, and the waters parting and the people walking by. We are familiar with that. We are familiar with, if you remember that movie, Yul Brenner with the chariots and running through and the waters coming and drowning them. For those of you that are younger, I think they made a newer version with um, Christian Bale, but I haven't seen it, so I can't tell you what it's about. But I remember that. I remember also, by just way of sharing, when the movie The Bible came out and we went to the theater to see it. I was a kid. I remember seeing The Bible. I don't think that that movie would get a whole lot of traction today. But, so Paul is appealing to their common experience. And In all of these things, what I want you to start seeing is the faithfulness of God. Notice how God has led them out of Egypt and he is leading them. Notice how God has taken them through the Red Sea and he is protecting them. And then notice as he keeps going on. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In other words, into the covenant of God. We know it as the Sinai Covenant, but it's also known as the Covenant of Moses. They are baptized into this covenant. God using Moses to bring down the law. And all ate the same spiritual food, referring to the manna. And all drank the same spiritual drink. Remember that Moses struck the rock when the people were grumbling. And water gushes out and they drink water. And remember that later on, God tells Moses to speak to the rock, but Moses strikes it twice. And because he dishonored God in front of the people, he does not get into the promised land. He felt the pressure of the people in that moment, and he he felt like he needed to do something other than to trust God. And he was punished for that. Notice, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And I want you to notice this statement. This is so important. The rock was Christ. Sometimes you hear people say, well, where's Jesus in the Old Testament? Wherever you see the word of God, the Lord in the Old Testament, you are seeing the triune God. 
You are seeing God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But here Paul makes it clear that the provision, the one who was providing for them in the wilderness was Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God. So I want you to notice that the faithfulness of God in providing for them and then the statement that follows, nevertheless, With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. That's an interesting way to put that. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. The idea of that word, though, the idea of the Greek word is this. This verb is to kill or to cause the death of many and to have the body strewn over a large area. It's a passive verb here. God is doing the killing. And their bodies are strewn over the wilderness. The author of Hebrews tells us why. It was for their unbelief. For their unbelief. And over and over again, they test God. And God, over and over again, proves his faithfulness. And they test God. Look at verse 6. Why, why do we have the Old Testament? Why is it documented? Why do we have the Bible? New Testament, Old Testament, complete. Verse 6. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. The Word of God reveals to us God first and foremost. The Word of God is not about us. The Word of God is not, as I've heard other people put it, basic instructions before leaving earth. Whatever that means. The Word of God is God disclosing himself. It is a revelation of himself. It is a revelation of a being who is so powerful that everything on this planet that we think is powerful is not even an inkling of his might, his grandeur, his majesty. The word of God reveals to us this God. And it reveals to us who he is, and what he has created us for. We are created for his glory. We are created to delight in him. We are created to have a relationship with God where God is the center. The word of God then reveals to us this God. And the word of God reveals 
to us what this God requires. We make it seem that all that is required of Christianity is some verbal profession of faith. That all that's required is something from the lips out. And then from then on, it really doesn't matter how you live your life, as long as you've made this statement of, I believe. But the Word of God serves to warn us about things like that. In Titus, he tells us, they proclaim me or profess me with their mouths, but by their very lifestyles they deny me. They are worthless and not good for anything. In James, even the demons believe and they tremble. As a matter of fact, if, if you want to see in the Bible the creatures that always get it right are the demons in the gospel. They always get it right. They always know who Jesus Christ is. They always address, son of the most high God. They get it right 100% of the time, and yet they are not redeemed. They are not regenerate. They are not saved. So the Bible reveals to us this God the Bible reveals what this God requires. And what he requires is a change, a new birth that is matched by a life that is progressively growing in what we call holiness. And the problem with using the term holy is we only look at it from one aspect, and that is the moral and ethical claim that is attached to that word to be holy, to be morally and ethically pure. And God is holy. That is his attribute. He is beyond all that. He is, there is no darkness in God. There is no shade or variation in God. So as we look at God, we see a morally pure being, but that word also carries another sense, and that is dedicated that is why God says to us, you shall be holy like I am holy. Yes, you are to adhere to what I have revealed are the standards of conduct, of how you are to live your life. And you are to be dedicated to me. So a life that is being sanctified is a life that is progressively dedicated to God. It is a life that is progressively dedicated to the things of God leaving behind the things of man and the things of the world, a life that considers God before making decisions, a life that is dedicated to God. That is what God requires, and that can only come by a change of heart. And that can only come by God. So the Bible serves as an example for us. And it serves as 
almost a compass for us. It directs us and it tells us here that we are not to desire evil as they did. And then Paul goes on and gives this command. Do not be an idolater as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He's quoting Exodus 32. He's saying, hey, don't be an idolater. Remember, God gave them the commandment, don't make any images, the second commandment. And then Moses goes off into the mountain. And what is the next thing that happens? Aaron is presiding over a ceremony to dedicate an image that they have just made to represent God. See, they weren't creating an image of another God. They were creating an image to represent the God and to represent his presence with them in violation of the second commandment. And then it is interesting because then you look at that that phrase there. And some of them were, and desired evil, and do not be idolaters. Some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That is an interesting word there in that seventh verse. The idea of that verb there, or the idea of that word there, is to get up and indulge in sexual activity. It is the same Word that is used to describe when Isaac was sitting there with Rebekah and Abimelech looks out and sees Isaac caressing Rebekah. That is the idea. They became idolaters and then they started to pursue other things that were immoral. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. Some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Here, referring to what happened in Numbers. They're in the wilderness and Balaam has given some instruction to the king there. And the people are seducing the Israelites. And as they seduce the Israelites, the Israelites get up and start intermingling with the people. And God had forbidden that. And so God turns around and has the people punished. So this is the account, Numbers 25. While, live, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to their sacrifices of their gods, and the people laid and bowed down to their gods, already pursuing idolatry. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Pure, the Lord of Pure, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of pure. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. They had yoked themselves, and they had 
become idolaters. And God judged them and punished them. And Paul is warning us of the consequences of idolatry. And notice what he says in verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents in the account that we just read. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. The word destroyer here is a one-time occurring word in the Greek New Testament. And it may be a reference to a destroying angel. It may be a reference to Satan. But either way, the destroyer is an instrument of God to bring about justice. So why is Paul rehearsing this history? Well, he's rehearsing it to warn them. But why should we take heed of this history? Look, we live in a culture where we've made God a bumper sticker. We live in a culture where we have statements such as, Jesus is my co-pilot. We live in a culture where scripture you can find everywhere and anywhere to include the restroom. We need to step back and really look at this text and see what it's saying about God. The God whom we serve is a holy God. And he will not tolerate sin. As a matter of fact, the right perspective of God is given to us in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah falls back and he has this vision of God And he doesn't know what to do with that. Other than to say, I am undone. In other words, I am destroyed. I'm a dead man. Because I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. Among a people of unclean lips, sinners. And I have seen the Lord. My question for us is, have you seen the Lord? How many of us just give a cursory nod to God and, you know, but don't step back and really consider this God that we are worshiping? How many of us enter prayer without preparing ourselves properly to go before him? How many of us take more time to prepare ourselves in the mirror to go to work than we do to prepare our hearts to meet a holy God? How distracted are we when we pray? How uninvolved are we in our prayers? And, and we, we treat God no differently than we would treat the person attending us behind the counter and we address them, thank you. And oh, by the way, can I get that? He is God. And until we understand who this being is. And until we fall down undone before him, until we give him his proper honor and praise and glory, why have we gathered here today to praise and worship God? 
We have gathered here today because we earnestly believe that he is. We have gathered here today as his people because we desire an encounter with the living God to break up the mundane existence, the monotony of our lives. And until we see him, and until we have that fear, that reverence of him, We cannot even begin to enter into the antechamber of his kingdom to praise him. See, for us, we're so disconnected from this history, just like they were. But I want you to understand the picture that Paul is painting here. He says, brothers, don't forget Don't forget that this God whom we have served historically and whom we are serving now, this is the same God who provided for our people in the wilderness, but killed those with whom he was dissatisfied with. And we are so hesitant to say that word. God killed them, but God killed them. He is God. And he is merciful and he is gracious and he is holy and he is just and he is righteous and he has wrath. We don't talk about those things. We shy away from those things because I think most of us are just uncomfortable with dealing with a being like him. But until we see him the way scripture reveals him to be, who are we worshiping? The analogy, which is crass, and it does not even compare, would be if I come to my wife and I look at her and I go, Hey, Sally. That's not my wife's name. Who am I addressing? Or if I pull out a picture I guess on my phone nowadays, I was going to say wallet, but most of us don't carry pictures in wallets anymore. And I guess I'm dating myself, but, you know, pull out your phone and you have a picture there and you say, this is my wife, Dottie, but it's a picture of another woman. Are you getting the picture? He is God. And he has revealed himself as who he is. And he has revealed himself perfectly in Christ Jesus, his son. And Christ Jesus says at the end of John 3.16, and most people do not like to read the end of John 3.16 because we kind of like just John 3.16. But if you were to turn to the end of John, that third chapter, you're going to read this in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's in the same chapter. You, you, you can't get around it. You can't just pick and choose. God has revealed himself. And so Paul gives us this description historically of God and his actions. 
And we can pick up in verse 11. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. The end of the ages can be understood in various ways, but it, it, it suffices to say that this period that we're at right now, the culmination of time, right? The last days, if we want to call it that. But they were written for our instruction. So that brings me to a point here that I, I do want to make. What is the point of preaching? The point of preaching is to take the word of God and to instruct. The point of preaching is not to make you feel better or me feel better. The point of preaching is to hold up a holy God before the congregation and for the congregation to understand what this holy God requires. And that's not popular. What is popular is entertainment. What is popular is to hit the right notes, to get the right feelings, so that we all walk out of here with a warm and fuzzy and a lovey-dovey feeling and never having an encounter with the real God. But the point of preaching is to instruct us, to bring us to the place where we see God, to bring us to the place where we consider our lives in light of what we've just seen. And so Paul says these were written for our instruction. And then he says, therefore let, not, let, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, hey, don't trust in yourself. Trust in God. And this is where I want us to come to. The whole point of it is right here. Paul distills it to this one set of verses. And he says it so just nonchalantly. We, we say it so nonchalantly. We look at it and go, oh, okay. But look, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Are you understanding the magnitude of that statement? Nothing that you are tempted with is is beyond the pale of human experience. That is the beauty of what Hebrew says about Christ. Christ was tempted in every way just like us in that experience of being human. Nothing that you and I are tempted with, whether it's thievery, whether it's murder, whether it's adultery, whether it's hate, whether it's whatever, grumbling, which we don't, you know, there are two sins we don't talk about in the church. One of them is gluttony. I'm I'm just going to be, I'm probably going to get a lot of hate, but that's okay. There's a problem when you see men of God that weigh 350 pounds because they can't control their sensuality. But we don't talk about that. We'll talk about adultery. We'll talk about murder. We'll talk about lying. We'll talk about stealing. But we won't talk about the man of God who's there. And I'm not talking about people with medical conditions. I get that. But the percentage of people like that is really small, to be honest. The other thing we don't talk about is grumbling in the church. Or gossiping. The southern way of gossiping starts off in this way in the church. Bless her heart. Bless his heart. Blah, 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 blah. I want you to pray for them. That's the other way it starts. And then blah, 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 blah. 
That's gossiping. And it undermines the church and is really a violation of the commandment, thou shalt not murder, because you're killing somebody's reputation. And instead of promoting the good, you are promoting bad, which is a violation of that commandment. The other thing we don't talk about is grumbling. Well, if I, I would do it this way. Well, why don't we? Grumbling undermines a church. And it undermines your life. Who wants to be around somebody who's always grumbling? Grumbling undermines a marriage. Grumbling undermines friendships. Grumbling. It's a sin. We don't address it. But it is a sin. And Paul says, don't grumble. God says, don't grumble. But I want to go back to this. Because this, there are two truisms that you hear a lot from behind the pulpit that are not true. One is, we're all sinners. No, we are not. Sinners are under the wrath of God. We are saints who struggle with sin. Because of what happened at the cross of Calvary, you are no longer a sinner. You have been brought into the kingdom of God. You are a saint. You struggle with sin, but you're not a sinner because a sinner is under the wrath of God. The second one is that God won't give you anything beyond what you can bear. That's not true. What is true is this, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to every man. And this is what's true. God is faithful. God is faithful. That's the whole point of what, God is, of what Paul is saying in this section right here, in these verses. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with every temptation, or but with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is faithful. And he provides a means of escape. And why are we tempted? Well, James tells us why we're tempted. If, if we really wanted to know why we're tempted, we, we can just go to James. In that first chapter, James tells us why we are tempted. And he goes like this in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own Desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's in our hearts. We desire the things that ought not be desired. And we bring those things to fruition. But with every temptation, God is faithful to provide a means of escape. 
The problem is most of us do not look for the means of escape. We turn our attention to what we desire in the moment, and that leads us down a very bad way. So what is the so what here? The so what here, uh, we can sum up in these two sets of verses. And this is what I want you to walk away with. If you heard nothing else, if you were offended by something I said, if whatever, I, I, just before you walk away angry, I want you to remember these two things. Second Timothy, second chapter, verses 8 through 13. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is Paul writing to Timothy. This is the last letter that the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy before he is executed under Nero. The saying is trustworthy. For if we had died with him, if we are united with Christ, if we are born again, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Look, I fail every day. Every single day, I am faithless. And the things I do, the things I say, things I watch, things I hear. And so are you. And so are you. And I praise God for the gift of repentance. I praise God that he has given us that mechanism to turn around from what we ought not be doing to him and to pursue him relentlessly and that he restores us and that even when I am faithless and when you are faithless, he is faithful. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And in the midst of my struggles, I hold on to this verse in Hebrews 13.5. And the context needs to be given, but I just want you to focus on this clause. And be content with what you have, for he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Here, a reference to the 10th commandment, don't covet, obviously. But the idea here is this. I will never leave you nor forsake you. In that never, in English... There are five no's in Greek. And I wish, I, I, I wish they'd have translated that literally in English because it would be such a, a much more powerfully, visually encouraging verse. But the way to read that verse is no, 
No, never, no, no. Will I leave you or forsake you? What an encouraging verse. The God that we started off talking about in Psalm 136, the God as that history of Israel is rehearsed in 136, is our God. And everywhere you read in Psalm 136, His loving kindness, His chesed, endures forever. Is something that we need to cling to. The loving kindness of the Lord endures forever. The loving kindness of the Lord endures forever when I sin. The loving kindness of the Lord endures forever when I feel hopeless. The loving kindness of the Lord endures forever when I'm on top of the mountain. The loving kindness of the Lord endures forever when I am angry or I am hurt. The loving kindness of the Lord endures forever because God is Faithful. If you walk away with nothing else from this sermon, walk away with this. Our God is faithful. His loving kindness endures forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For your word. Thank you, God, that you have revealed yourself in your word and that you tell us who you are. And you tell us that your loving kindness endures forever and that it is not contingent upon our works, but rather it is contingent upon the one who hung on the cross and said, it is finished. And who rose again and sits at your right hand, Father, and will come for us, the bride. And so, Lord, lead us this day and this hour by your word and your spirit into true lives of holiness and godliness and fellowship. Let us walk out these doors and proclaim that your loving kindness endures forever. In Jesus' name and all of God's people.